Welcome to the podcast, Commonwealth Magazine's weekly discussion about Massachusetts politics and policy. Governor Charlie Baker had only two choices last week on major climate change legislation, given the bill's passage at the end of the last legislative session. He could sign the bill into law or he could veto it. He chose to veto the measure, citing a number of problems with the bill. And now attention is turning to what the legislature is going to do about it. House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka have said their two chambers are going to quickly pass the bill Baker vetoed and send it back to him. It sets the stage for a very interesting political clash over an issue that Spilka and Mariano are calling the greatest existential threat facing our state, our nation, and our planet. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by Senator Michael Barrett of Lexington, the Senate's point person on climate legislation, and Bradley Campbell, the president of the Conservation Law Foundation. Welcome to both of you. Happy to be here. Thank you, Bruce. Let's start with a little background, Senator. What would this bill do? Well, the, uh, the premise I think here is on the part of a lot of legislators, Bruce, and many, many grassroots activists, many citizens, is that Massachusetts is falling off the pace in terms of dealing with climate at the very moment where all of us feel we need to step up the pace. So this bill is an attempt to make everything real. Uh, one of the weaknesses to the 2008 Global Warming Solutions Act, which provides the current uh, supporting structure for Massachusetts climate policy, is that in what I'm sure was then a compromise, the check-ins, the important milestones Massachusetts has to meet on the way to getting to the right place in the year 2050 are set at 10-year intervals, unbelievably enough. So today in 2021, we are not due for the next check-in on whether we're reducing emissions as we must until the year 2030. That is upsetting a lot of people. So we're trying to bring the timelines closer to the current era, the current legislature, and quite candidly, and I think this has been a point of contention with the Baker people, the current governor. We want Massachusetts having to meet five-year emissions limits or goals. And we wanna make sure that uh, within those limits, we kind of break down the problem into their component parts, right? I mean, a household budget, or I should say, listen, a, a budget for your company um, or a budget for the state of Massachusetts takes place in three month increments, or you do it one year at a time. Really the state of Massachusetts and the world have to be on a kind of emissions budget. We really only have so much additional polluting we can do in any given period. So our current plan, our new bill says, look, we're going to set emissions budgets for ourselves much more frequently. We're going to break down the problem into the key sources of pollution, transportation, uh, our businesses, the generation of electric power, the natural gas distribution system, even our houses. You need to build this emissions budget from the components up to the grand total that you're going to permit yourself. These are basic planning principles that the private sector observes when they do their three month objectives uh, that the state government does when it puts together a budget for one year at a time. 
it was alarming to us that the emissions budget under which we really have to begin to live was being set only every 10 years. The legislature wanted to do something about that and did with this important bill. Mr. Camelwood, did you, what, what was your reaction to the governor's veto? Well, we were both stunned and disappointed. Uh, just nine months ago on Earth Day, with a lot of fanfare, uh, Governor Baker actually toughened our state climate law, as he's authorized to do, and made the goal under the law or the mandate under the law, uh, not just 80% reductions in greenhouse gases by 2050, but actually getting to net zero emissions, a much tougher target by 2050. Uh, this bill gives us the tools that are needed to get us to that goal, to get, keep us on track and on pace, as Senator Barrett said. So it, it was really stunning that uh, he vetoed the bill uh, when so much of it mirrors uh, what the administration itself has opposed, uh, has proposed. Uh, obviously there's never perfect alignment, but this comes pretty close to what the administration itself has been saying would be necessary. Uh, and I say that as, as the head of an organization has worked closely with the administration. We, uh, after we established in court that the uh, current climate law is enforceable, we worked with the administration on its first round of rules, defended those rules with them in court. Uh, and as the Supreme Judicial Court said, we expected a second round of rules at the pace that the implementation of the law would continue. It really has uh, been, there really has been a hiatus in progress. And that's really what the legislature was responding to. Senator, the, the governor did issue a veto letter that contained a lot of what he objected to in the bill. Um, what did you think of those objections? Well, I assume that the governor didn't write it himself, uh, that it was a staff workup. I think it needs a little improvement. Uh, I could not extract from it, Bruce, a coherent, well-constructed case against anything currently in the Senate bill. Uh, a number of issues have been raised. Uh, one has to do with the spurious idea that we're discouraging housing. I can tell you that in drafting the Senate bill, we sat down with NIOP, the Statewide Association of Developers and Builders. We listened to reservations they had. This was in September of 2019, 15 months ago. We took their, op their observations into account when we passed a Senate bill in January of 2020, a full year ago. We made sure that we wrote a stretch energy code provision, local option, doesn't go into effect anywhere in Massachusetts until a given community is ready to do it and opts to do it, and provides lots of flexibility for things, for phasing things in in a deliberative, thoughtful way to have those provisions of what became this bill dismissed as anti-housing, as, as if wanting to green our buildings and wanting to house our people are sometime, somehow antithetical. That was really disconcerting to me. And I listened closely to the justification the governor invoked, no studies, no data, no statistics. Instead, he said he had heard from some special interests. He had heard from the same builders and developers whom we had listened to a year and a half ago. Uh, those builders and developers ought to be a little bit embarrassed 
They ought to appreciate that they've met with me face to face and that section 101 of this bill is written to accommodate their original concerns. I don't think they leveled with the governor. I'm not sure that he went into yesterday's veto fully briefed on how well the legislature had uh, made sure that all stakeholders were respected in the drafting of the bill that we put before it. And do you feel like the objection to uh, the, there's a, there's a goal for 2030 that is in the, in the legislature's bill was a little bit higher than what the administration has been talking about, five percentage points of a, off of a certain level. Um, is that a, he, he used the term, it, it would cost Massachusetts around $6 billion more to go those, that little extra. Where, where did that come from? Boy, would I like to know. You know, I've been uh, dealing with this provision of the bill. This, this, the legislature would like us to uh, reduce our carbon emissions 50% below a base year for comparison's sake by the year 2030. That would bring us halfway, halfway roughly to where we ultimately need to go. I have never until yesterday, and I am familiar with all the written documents that the executive branch has released on this topic. I have never seen that $6 billion figure until yesterday. I wonder if the governor had ever seen the $6 billion figure until yesterday. I can tell you that in hearings of my committee in which we've had his energy and environment people before us, I've probed for this idea that there's some extraordinary difference between 50% below 1990 and 45% below 1990, the number preferred by the administration, somehow extraordinarily reducing emissions 45% below a base year is fine would create green jobs, would be pro-growth. But going five additional percentage points to 50% sends us off a cliff. I can't wait to see the economic study that buttresses that point of view because it will be unlike any economic study I've ever read. The truth is that 45% below a base year, 50% below a base year, in both cases, the key thing to understand is that when you green the environment, the money that you spend doesn't go out of state. If you really want to talk about a setback for Massachusetts, talk about our need to, to uh, ex import natural gas from Pennsylvania or oil from Texas or the Middle East. That's money out of our pockets into another part of the world. When you hire someone to go up to your roof to put on solar panels, you're taking Massachusetts dollars and paying them to Massachusetts people the money stays local, 45% below a base year, 50% below a base year. Reasonable people can differ on what the right magic number is because these figures to some extent are arbitrary. Neither figure is supported by modeling. Uh, both are judgment calls about whether in the near term, we need to make up some serious ground here in order to be prepared for the unknowns at the end of the process as the year 2050 approaches. As long as you keep the spending within Massachusetts, the idea of cost needs to be viewed differently than it would if the money were leaving Massachusetts as under our current fossil fuel environment, it does. I think it's also important to understand that time is of the essence, uh, both in terms of addressing the climate crisis, but also in terms of giving uh, businesses and even families the lead time they need 
to make these changes. And in some sense, uh, quibbling over 45% versus 50% is uh, actually may uh, add to the problems because uh, it, it, by losing the time that we will lose by this veto, uh, we're essentially reducing the amount of time for businesses to plan, for, them to, for businesses to incorporate uh, these requirements, uh, any new requirements into their investment cycle, and that whether, that's, whether that's commercial buildings or uh, other businesses. And so we're really, um, it's, it's really in many senses a, a, a specious uh, issue to raise or uh, a quibble that really, really can't be resolved. And uh, it's the case that um, you know, all in every environmental statute that's been passed just about, the predictions of, of what the costs will be down the road are always uh, subject to significant uncertainty. Uh, and the reality is that the administration has a great deal of latitude in how this bill is implemented. Uh, they're the ones that'll set the rules ultimately. Uh, and obviously the legislature can respond if anything turns out to be unworkable. But for many of these provisions, even the ones the governor is objecting to, they're not new or exotic. Many of them have been road tested. For example, the stretch energy codes that Senator Barrett referred to. Uh, California's had those in place for years. The housing market didn't shut down uh, and uh, the economy in, in California uh, before COVID was as robust as any in the nation, even though they have the most progressive climate goals. Uh, so it's, it's really not uh, possible to take some of the governor's uh, complaints at face value. Yeah. You know, just to, just to build on what Brad says, uh, I, I was struck by one portion of the governor's veto message yesterday, and, and this is illustrative of several other mistakes. Uh, he quotes uh, a fellow from Western Mass as saying that creating a new building code with undefined terms like net zero building is quite literal, literally dangerous. What an extraordinary thing to say. It's as if the governor does not realize that a plan put out by his own environmental people just two weeks ago on December 30th, itself calls for a new building code with an undefined terms in it. Why did the legislature not define net zero building? out of respect for the Baker administration. We were not overly prescriptive here. A model of good lawmaking is you provide decent discretion to the folks who actually have to execute the law, the folks in the executive branch. So we call for a definition of net zero building, but we don't provide it ourselves. We know that there are staffers right now sitting in the Baker administration who day by day uh, apply expertise to the question of building codes. We know them because we talked to them when we wrote this bill. And we provided ample amplitude for them to define key terms. So how amazing it is that the Baker veto letter repudiates the Baker climate plan for 2030 uh, and in so doing also uh, cast some aspersions on the legislation before us. Uh, the legislature and the executive branch agree on the need for a building code Again, I think someone ill-served the governor in setting him up for that statement yesterday. So, so what happens next, Senator? Uh, the, the Speaker and the Senate President have talked about passing the same bill that was passed last session, 
again this session. Uh, how's that going to work? How's it going to happen? Well, speaking of the House Speaker and the Senate President, boy, do we owe them a debt of thanks, Bruce. The two of them, uh, both relatively new leaders of their respective branches, have really saved climate policy for the state of Massachusetts. You don't see a, an exceptional moment like that every day. Uh, their intervention came at a time when this bill was foundering. So uh, my heartfelt gratitude goes out to them. Listen, uh, they're heads of their respective chambers. They have flexibilities in terms of uh, the rules that come out of their respective rules committees. They can structure an early debate around this bill if they put their minds to it, and, and uh, apparently they have. Uh, don't know what the particular contour of the structure will look like, but they have the, the ability to make that happen. We, so, will still lose, we will still lose time though. Uh, yes. Even, even in the best of circumstances. And we'll, yeah, lose some, we'll, we'll lose some great protections for communities. This, this bill, uh, credit to the legislature, has uh, special protections for communities that have suffered more than their share of pollution. Communities were excited about that. Uh, there was, this, is, this is precedent setting for the state. Uh, and yet, you know, that will now be in abeyance. And in the meantime, the decisions to which those provisions would apply will go on without those protections in place. So it's, there really is a loss, even if we uh, are able to get the same bill again in six months or eight months. Yeah. Well, I, I want to I wanna second what Brad says. He's absolutely right. There are no guarantees uh, in do-overs. And uh, while I'm guardedly optimistic, the truth is that this could go south in some way that we can't anticipate. So uh, the, the governor has put us in, in peril here. Uh, the speaker and the Senate president are determined to rescue us. Let's hope this goes well. And would you favor doing the same bill, uh, sending the same bill to the governor, to the governor's center? Well, I, you don't want to do what Congress sometimes does, which is to preclude all amendments from being considered. You want to make sure that there's an internally democratic process here. On the other hand, the House and the legislature overwhelmingly voted the bill that the governor vetoed. Uh, there were only two dissenting votes among 40 senators, and I think there may have been nine dissenting votes among 160 state representatives. So this bill has legs. It wouldn't be the worst thing to see it go back to the governor as is, to see him generate in legal language that we can read word for word provisions that encapsulate his criticisms so that we might give them their due weight. Uh, we have no interest in shutting the governor out of this process. Sometimes, truly, the legislature reaches agreement at the end of the year. Uh, but that's not to say that we don't want to hear from him. And as, when, as long as we're talking about hearing from the governor, can I provide a little bit of a, a backstory on our supposedly coming to agreement at the very end and his not having had a chance to participate? The truth of the matter is that beginning in the fall of, of 2019, about a year and four months ago, I began to reach out to the administration. We were then drafting what became the Senate bill. I also reached out to NIOP, by the way, the builders and developers who have recently come forward with this spurious idea that we're hurting housing. I said to the administration and to the developers, tell me what you like about the proposed Senate approach. Tell me what you don't like. The developers at least voiced concerns. We did take their concerns to heart and we changed the bill to create a new and more flexible 
stretch energy code that will get the job done in terms of greening our buildings, but in a way that respects the private development community. In contrast, the administration gave us essentially nothing. I've repeatedly reached out to them, especially over the calendar year 2020. I told them, I reminded them what the Senate had done in January of 2020, one year ago. And I waited for a full year to hear criticisms of our handiwork. Uh, I heard a couple of useful things, but none on the issues that the governor cited yesterday. It is so exasperating to have the governor wax indignant about not having a seat at the table when I had given his people a seat at the table and due to their own choices, the seat had remained empty. It was as if we were debating an empty chair while running for office. They just declined to occupy it. And they had lots of invitations from me and lots of opportunity to tell us what, if anything, really bothers them about this legislation that we put together. Mr. Campbell, what, what do you think uh, the perception of the, I mean, we're all just reacting in the moment, but what do you think the perception of the governor and this veto will be uh, in the wake of it? Do you think his reputation as a supporter of climate change will take a hit as a result? I think it takes a hit. Um, uh, you know, the governor with his Earth Day announcement, you know, raising the bar under the statute uh, with a number of other efforts underway in this administration, uh, had, and particularly uh, among Republicans, had was building a great record on climate. And this, uh, this really flies in the face of that. And it, the, the sad thing about the justifications for the veto uh, taken together is they really reprise the old uh, false choice that, that uh, we can only address environment, we can only uh, protect the climate if we sacrifice the economy. Very backward looking view. Uh, when otherwise we really should be uh, forward looking. Our economy in this region depends on being climate leaders. It depends on taking advantage of uh, the offshore wind resource that could make us the Saudi Arabia of wind energy. Uh, it depends on being the leader in the technologies that are going to uh, dominate this space. And, and we are uh, the tech hub uh, of the United States. And, and so it's, it's, it's very disappointing uh, that uh, there's this look backward to sort of the old economy uh, rather than looking at this bill for what it is, which is uh, a roadmap to the new economy, uh, to the new prosperity that we need to build uh, based on a cleaner energy platform. And Senator, just one last thing to you. You've, you've sort of hinted at, and, and in past conversations, you've sort of suggested that this is not an area that the governor specializes in, that it's not his you know, primary historical focus, shall we say, um, and that he, he was ill-served by his staff. Talk a little bit more about that. What, what is it that you mean? Well, well, I listen, I respect the governor's expertise in healthcare enormously. Uh, I did some healthcare work myself during the years when I was not in the legislature. And I, he has had a very impressive career as CEO of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare uh, during his interregnum between government stints. So I know where he's strong. And I, I happen to know that he participates very actively as a knowledgeable uh, person when it comes to healthcare policy. It's clear that isn't true with respect to energy, the environment and climate. And so of necessity, since this is an area that he hasn't 
worked on previously, he is very dependent on his staff. And, and I will just say that yesterday I was looking for a strong letter of veto that mounted serious arguments that I needed to think about uh, in support of this extraordinary action of his, the letter is weak. The letter makes no cogent case around housing or a host of other things. That was uh, disconcerting to me because this was not only a veto that came at a bad time for reasons Brad has mentioned, this was also a veto that did not come with deep substantive reasoning. Uh, yeah, that's, um, I, I hope myself that the staff to the governor in this area learned something. What I hope they take away is that they should have engaged with me and with the House for the entirety of 2020. They should have been on the phone. They should have been on Zoom. They should have been uh, telling us what aspects of the Senate bill or the House bill uh, they liked and what they didn't like. The fact that they went silent for a full year and then told the governor to complain about not being heard yesterday, I don't think that reflects the best judgment. I would, I would add to that though, that the government, governor does have some terrific staffers on climate. I think his energy and environment, uh, environmental affairs secretary uh, is someone who knows these issues. What, what struck me is in, the, uh, in his veto letter was that the arguments, it really was a, a cobbled together uh, collection of, of politically tinged arguments rather than really substantive objections that, uh, that the legislature could have addressed. Uh, and in some cases, they were objections that the legislature did address. Uh, so it's, it's, it was really disturbing for that reason uh, and a suggestion that, that uh, he didn't, perhaps didn't get the best advice on this issue. Senator Michael Barrett of Lexington, Bradley Campbell of the Conservation Law Foundation, thank you for joining us this week, and we'll see you next week, all of our listeners. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, thank you Senator.